This audio is from the Axis Church in Nashville, Tennessee, and is part of our sermon series, Desperate, Vital Doctrine for All of Life from the Book of Ephesians. For more information, please visit theaxischurch.org. This is our second Sunday in our new series that we've entitled Desperate, as we explore vital doctrines for life from the book, from the letter uh, to the Ephesians. The reason why we've entitled it Desperate is because that's how we are, period. We are desperate, and Ephesians tells us this, specifically in the first three chapters of just how desperate we are for God, how needy we are, and what he does about that. Uh, Remember that this uh, book, or this letter, as it was originally written, was written by a man named Paul. Uh, who, previous to his conversion, before he became a Christian, his name was Saul. Uh, not only did his name change, his life changed after he met Jesus. And rather than working against God, he worked for God. Rather than being against the church, literally killing Christians, uh, very much a terrorist in the New Testament days, uh, he was working for the church. Uh, he actually wrote this letter to Ephesian, to the Ephesian people, um, from a prison cell in Rome, as he himself had done to hundreds of other Christians, uh, he's locked up for being a Christian. Um, he wrote this letter uh, around 60 to 62 AD, um, and he wrote it to the churches within Ephesus, within Laodicea, and with Hierapolis. Church tradition holds to the fact that he was beheaded under the rule of Nero around year 65 to 67. So within just a few years of writing this letter, um, he is in the glory of God's presence. Um, And uh, we know that he's a man, and the Lord used this man to pin these words. Uh, But this is ultimately not the words of Paul, a mere man, Ultimately, this is the Holy Spirit working through him, using his pen to say to the church, to say to us today what it is that he wants us to know about himself and about about us. So with that said, let's jump to the text, and I ask that you be encouraged by the word of the Lord, starting in verse 13, though our text for today begins in 15. In him, in Christ, you also, when you heard the word of truth, which is the gospel of your salvation, and believed. So you heard and believed in him. You were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit who's the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire full possession of it to the praise of his glory. For this reason, here's our text for today, because I've heard of your faith in our Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you. I remember you in my prayers that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, nonetheless, that he may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, 
having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you will know what is the hope to which he has called you, that you would know what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and that you would know what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, even above every name that is named, not only now here in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, the church which is his body, the church which is the fullness of him who fills all in all. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Let's pray. God, be with us now as we approach your text. Would we um, handle this text with humility? Would you open our eyes to see what it says? And would we approach you as, as Moses, uh, Lord, re removing shoes and approaching holy ground on our knees and in humility as we hear your word? Lord, help us carefully handle it today, rightly handle this truth. And would we be quickened by it, changed by it, convicted by it? Lord, be with those who are Christians. Would this be encouraging? Lord, would they experience uh, change and transformation even more today? And Lord, for those who don't believe you and they question you and they are shocked that they're even in a building where a church gathers today. Lord, would you encourage them and speak to them? Would you, I ask that you would save them, even if they're surprised by that. Lord, thank you for this time. Be with us, I ask in Christ's name. Amen. So remember here that, that Paul is addressing Christians. He's writing this letter to churches, okay? Uh, these are people who have been saved. Uh, he, he just walked with us uh, in the previous 14 verses that we looked at last week, um, our glorious redemption according to his purposes, according to his marvelous, wonderful grace. Uh, we have been saved. He's writing to people who have been saved, people who have been sealed, people that have been adopted and made God's children who were against him and who hated him. He's writing to people who have been granted an inheritance and who have received the Holy Spirit. But these people need something else. It's as if Paul, it's not enough, though it is glorious and it's wonderful and it is ultimately enough. He's still praying and asking God for something more for his church family. And he doesn't just ask this, he continues in this sort of prayer. It's as if you get the idea that he sees rightly, I believe, conversion as but the first step. But there's so many more possibilities for the one who's been converted, for the, for the Christian, for the Christ follower, the believer in Jesus, the one who hopes in the Messiah given by God according to the scriptures. Something more. There's more possibilities anyway. So seeing conversion in this way, it's like, you know, once a baby has taken its first step, once a toddler has taken its first step, the parents don't call the track coach and say, okay, we're done. We're ready. Tomorrow, we'll be there. And, and neither does a parent, uh, when their child is born, say, okay, very well, we're finished, and you leave. 
You see, it's the beginning. Our conversion, when, when those of us in this room who have been graciously, miraculously been made Christians, when that happens, that's just the beginning. Being reborn, as John would say it, being born again, that's the beginning. Being a Christian, you, you are saved from the wrath of God. You, you're saved from the guilt of sin. The penalty of sin is removed, and you have been justified, legally justified. It's an act of a judge. The supreme judge and ruler and creator of all things looks at you, looks at Christ's work for you, and says, perfect, holy, and blameless. And he slams his mallet. You've been justified, declared righteous because of Christ. But now that we're alive, we get to practice what it means to live in this reborn state. And this is our sanctification, where, where we slowly begin to learn more and more of what it means to be a Christian, to be like Christ, to become more in the present and through practice what we already are in the eyes of God in eternity future. He slowly separates us, sanctifies us. It's a filtering term where you pull apart, you begin to remove from for a special purpose. You, you are being sanctified. So now we get to experience through our sanctification, now that we have been justified, we now get to experience through our sanctification what it means to grow, what it means to develop and flourish in our new life in Christ, to become more like Jesus, the one who died that we might experience this life. So the power and the practice of sin is slowly broken from us in our sanctification as we embrace more and more what it means to live in Christ, that union with Christ, in Christ, in him, in the beloved, in the Lord Jesus. You see that over and over and over in all of Paul's writings. He wrote 13 books and letters that are in your New Testament and there's that common thread of in Christ, in him. The union with Christ is so vitally important to our salvation. So Paul prays for these Christians. In verse 15, you see, for this reason, because I've heard of two things in particular, your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints. This, this faith is not seen. This love is seen. And it's as if Paul is saying, I've heard that you're a Christian. I'm writing to you because I've, I've heard that you're talking the talk and walking the walk. I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your visible love toward all the saints. These two proofs, these two fruits being observed and witnessed and practiced, it should be confirming for the believer in Christ Jesus. If people are hearing of your faith, if people are are observing your love for Christians, particular here, love for all the saints. He says, for this reason, because of your faith in the Lord Jesus. No word um, is on accident or thrown in or haphazard with Paul. He's very intentional. Okay, this is, this is beautiful writing. Of all his writings, this is so beautiful in how it's originally given to us in the Greek. It stands out as superior to his other writings in just quality and intentionality. So he wastes no single word. So he says, Lord Jesus. He doesn't say in Christ. He says in the Lord Jesus. In Jesus as Lord. 
It's the uh, faith in the fact that Jesus is Lord, Lord, God, Master, Lord, Master, Lord, God, Jesus, man, Jesus in the flesh, your faith in the God-man, Messiah, Jesus Christ. And notice he says it's in the Lord Jesus. It's not in your church attendance. It's not your faith in your love toward the saints. It's not in your performance that makes you good enough. It's not in you uh, being better than that lady or that gentleman. It's not in the way that you dress. It's not in the music that you listen to or don't listen to. Your, your goodness and righteousness isn't determined upon uh, what you drink or refrain from and what you give to financially and what you don't. It's not in how you are tolerant towards others. We're not made righteous by recycling. We're not made righteous just through sharing. None of these things will do. Only Jesus. He hears of their faith in the Lord Jesus. And he hears of their love for one another. So he's heard these things being true. So I asked myself, and I put it before you, what are you known for? He heard this to be true of them. He's witnessed it, but he continues to hear this. What is it that stands out about you? When, when someone summarizes you and they say, man, I've observed these things. Are these the two types of things that are going to stick out? This is what Paul says that they're known for. What am I known for? What are you known for? That's quite an interesting question to consider. He observes these things. For this reason, because I've heard of your faith in Lord Jesus and to your love toward all the saints, I am constant and persisting. I do not cease to give thanks for you. I remember you in my prayers. When, when we observe this, when, when amongst ourselves here at the Axis, when, when we observe others' faith in Christ, when we are just through struggle and through battle, we see a resolve and a gospel grit in others to, for their, to just persevere through faith, through struggle and through difficulties. You're just, you see that they are steadfast in their devotion to Christ. When you see that, when you see their faith in Jesus, the Lord Jesus, and you witness someone and how they love for us and love for one another, pump the brakes and say, thank you, God. Give them a gospel high five and say, man, this is not normal. We hated God and we were self-seeking and self-interested, but God changed us and he's changing you and it's obvious. I see your faith. I see the way that you love. Man, praise God for this. This is the example that Paul gives us. And this is a gift from God for us. Part of being a, a, a piece of a church family, a, a part of the body in the local church, Part of this is thanking God for those who make up your church family. It's thanking God for one another. It's remembering these people that make up the Axis Church here specifically, remembering them in your prayers. It is so much more than just showing up on a Sunday. It's so much more than just thinking about one another when you see them. It's being concerned for them. It's, it's being concerned about them uh, in some way at all times. 
And this is a value of the axis, is that we know one another and that we're known by one another. And as a way of doing this, this is an example even, be encouraged by this if you're part of the church family here. Um, as Foster, our brother on the keys this morning, as he put it when he saw this, he says, that's the axis, church, not a building. See, these are pictures of all our partners that make up the Axis Church family. That's the church at the Axis. And as a way of us remembering and praying for one another, we, we have these pictures and your names are under each one so that we'll know you because as we're growing, we're, we're, it's hard to know one another. And, and, but having a face and a name, we begin to know you, but then we can also uh, pray for you by face and by name, remembering you. This is, this is something that we see Paul valuing. This is something that, that we value. This is what it means to be part of a church family. It's not coming in for a, a live podcast experience where it's just kind of like better than listening online or something. It's much more than that. It's being a part of something bigger than you. God saved a people, not just a person, but he saved a person in order to save a greater people. And so as a part, as a part of the plan of God is someone who's been redeemed, you're to be part of something bigger, part of a church family. So be encouraged by that, specifically those who are partners or desiring to be. So Paul here, he, he asks something, he prays something as he's remembering them and thanking God for them. He's, he's praying for something in verse 17. He, that, the, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ... Okay, so it's as if he stops here and reminds himself of the one in whom he's speaking. He's not addressing a mere human person, but the God of Christ, okay? The Father of glory. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, the one who is so very supremely impressive, may give you the spirit of wisdom and a revelation. This is his ask. I'm asking. I'm thanking him for these things, but then I'm, I'm asking that he would give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation. This isn't a second outpouring of the spirit per se, or a, another dose of the ghost, if you've heard of that before. It's not referring to this. Um, you, he's asking that you would be able to know God more that you would not be content with the God that you know at your conversion, but that you would continue to know him and learn him, to be encouraged by him, that your knowledge of him would grow. And the only way to have this is to have the spirit of wisdom and of revelation, the Holy Spirit given to you. Otherwise, you wouldn't know. Otherwise, there's things you wouldn't see that wouldn't be revealed in regards to the knowledge of God. So we must have this working within us in order for us to know him. So this is needed in our conversion, but it's needed in our obedience lived out through our life. This is, an, this is ongoing, this big ask before the Lord for this church, that they would understand him more, grow in their knowledge of him, that they would not be ignorant or doubt, but that they would know God. The most supreme knowledge and experience available to anyone is knowing God. Not what he does, not what he gives, but that they would know him. Him, who he is. 
And all this is a gift because he's saying, I'm asking that he would give you. So this is a gift that he's praying for, that they would know him more, that they would be practicing his presence, which is only made possible through the finished work of Christ on the cross and in his resurrection. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened. We're blind, we're ignorant, we must have him open and illuminate and bring knowledge to us. He has to speak to our darkness, speak to our ignorance. Having the eyes of our hearts enlightened that you may know. Not be fickle about, not be uncertain of, but that you may know, one, the knowledge of him, right? That's the, that's the preeminent thing he's talking about here. But then there's three aspects that he wants them to continue to grow in their understanding of. I, I'm, I'm praying that, that you have your eyes open to some greater truth of your knowledge of God. And it's these three specific things, that you would know what is the hope to which he has called you. That, that you would have, uh, that you would have a certainty of your hope, that you would be sure of your hope. It's an assurance of your hope and faith. God's people, God's children, steadfastly moving forward in their faith, knowing confidently that they're a part of the elect, that they are part of being an heir with Christ Jesus. I'm praying that you are sure as you plow forward that you're comforted by this gospel certainty. What is the hope to which he has called you? And I'm also praying that, that you would know what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. You're experiencing taste and appetizers, but I want you to understand the full course that lies ahead. So it's as if you feel him pressing this church to the scriptures, to knowing who God is and understanding more of what lies ahead. Here's what awaits us. Keep your eyes on the horizon. Keep your eyes moving forward. There's a promised land that awaits the Christians. There's something that we're to be longing for. And this speaks into our ability to be able to endure today. Keep your eyes on Zion. Don't get caught up in the struggle and be, and be led astray and, and, and don't, be, don't grow weary even in well-doing. Don't lose heart. Remember what lies ahead. There's something better. And I want you to understand more of the riches of the glorious inheritance that awaits us. So endure, hold fast, continue falling forward, continue making progress towards this glorious inheritance. I remember my senior year of college, we had just, or I'm sorry, senior year of high school, we had just lost our junior year. We lost um, in the state championship final game. We lost in basketball. And we saw someone else cut down the net. Someone else hoisted the trophy. No matter how big second place is, it's like, yeah, whatever. It's never coming in our school. You know, that was our, just, we were just so discouraged. First day of practice our senior year, uh, my coach, Tony Shirley, he carries out a ladder, a net, scissors, and the second place trophy. And he showed us these things basically saying, if you work hard from today until the end of this season, you will grab hold of those scissors, you'll climb up a ladder, you'll cut down this net, and you'll put that net over a first place trophy. 
But you're going to have to trust me. You're going to have to work hard every day. You're going to have to eat right every day. You're going to have to work, work, work. You're going to have to persist in these things. But let these visions of what can be motivate you to endure and not quit, tap out, or lie about actually how hard you're working. Let's go to work. In a similar way, not through our efforts, for sake of analogy, dismiss that notion because Christ did all the work for us. So all we get to do is enjoy the confetti. It's done. But let the glorious inheritance that awaits, holding up that first place trophy, experiencing that confetti, cutting down the net, let the glory of that moment that is yet to happen, let that encourage you to endure, to develop that gospel grit needed to continue to persist steadfastly in the scriptures, steadfastly in your faith, steadfastly in community of the local church, steadfastly outdoing one another and showing honor, steadfastly moving forward as a missionary of the gospel, ministers of reconciliation. Let this speak into our current struggle to not lose heart. Then in verse 19, he's saying, I'm praying that you may know what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe. The the exceeding immeasurable greatness, the surpassing greatness, that you would know the strength of God Almighty, the greatness of his power, the power to persevere through any obstacle. It understands no limits. And this power is toward us who believe. He's powerful enough to come to you as a dead man and say, get up and call it a nap. In the New Testament, he's not dead, he's asleep. God has the power to come to us as we believe. We're quickened by the Holy Spirit, causing our eyes to open, causing our heart to begin beating as we're melted in just how much we're loved by him and wowed by his glory and his saving power. But not only this, he continues to save us. He's powerful enough to persist through our struggle with us, through our unbelief and our apathy and our sin, continuing to draw us to repentance. It's as if we started the mess, but he's cleaning it up and he's faithful to do so until the appearance of the Lord Jesus and the day of the Lord. Amen. Without this power, we are helpless and hopeless. But the good news of the gospel is that God is the power and the help of the helpless. And he can change things that we can't. But as Christians, do you realize that this power is within you? Don't put your limitation on God. He doesn't understand limits. He's yet to max out on the bench press in the gym. Nothing is too hard for him. He doesn't have the the limitations that you have, the limits that you have. He's encouraging them that they would actually see the, the power of God that is in the Christian and the power of God in who he is in general. He's limitless and immeasurable in his greatness. And then he begins to unpack this for us just to get a taste of this Glory, this might, the strength of our God to us who believe. Here's kind of how strong he is. According to the working of his great might, this working of his great might, it's not according, our salvation and belief is not according to our 
goodness or our efforts, but his great might. I want you to be comforted by this, that the the hope of our salvation lies not in our strength, lies not in our greatness. It doesn't even lie in the intensity of our faith, but in the one in whom we have faith in, and he is great, and he is mighty, according to the working of his great might. Here's a taste of it, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead. And when he worked in seating him at his right hand in the heavenly places, he seated him. He, it, that's the word, it's almost you get a sense of like a inauguration. It's when someone has been specifically placed in an office or position, okay? He has seated him. It's done. He's on his throne. He's seated him in that position. Seated him at his right hand. Right hand, this isn't the opposite of left, this right hand that he uses here is a, it's a, it's a position of great status, of great honor. He seated him in this official position at his right hand, at this position of great status in the heavenlies. Not in the White House, not, not at the Kremlin in, in Moscow, not, not in any temple or building made with hands, but in the heavenlies. He's seated far above all these things as he unpacks for us. He's far above all rule. And this is a supernatural influence of power. It's not just a ruler, but it's a supernatural ruler, supernatural influences and powers. He's far above those. He's far above all authority. Speaking of control, he's far above all other control. He's far above all power. And this is a term used for military power and strength. He's, he's greater and far above any army or governing force. And he's far above all dominion. This is the majestic legal authority and dominance. He's far above all that. And he's far above every name, every person, every power that is named, not only today, right now in this age, but in the one to come in eternity future. As God continues, his plan is the idea. Now, would I remind you here, please, that he's in prison. Paul is in prison. He's chained to a Roman centurion 24 hours a day, seven days a week. He's writing this as the chain is moving that he's shackled on. He's looking at this centurion and he's writing... Far above this guy too, far above this chain, far above Rome, far above Nero, far above all these things. Far above your struggle, far above your need for a job, far above your unbelief and your apathy, far above all your concerns, far above your, your vehicle needs, far above your need for your children, reconciliation with a loved one, far above all these things. Far above you being excluded, mistreated, and oppressed. Far above all these things, he's ruling and reigning. Don't place your limitations of your situation in what power you have in the flesh, but of the one who's within you. It's as if Paul's trying to say, hey folks, I'm in prison, I may die, but this isn't going to thwart God's plan. Church, be encouraged. No limitation is with our Father. He will continue to do what he said he'll do, not only today in this age, but in the ages to come. This is an encouragement for the church. Amen? Yes. And as if he needs to continue, 
He does in verse 22. And that's kind of enough, Paul. We get it. This is awesome. No, no, no. He's, he placed him far above, but just, just so you don't misunderstand Paul, he wants you to know what's underneath Christ as well. He put all things under his feet. He didn't just place it, he slammed it. He didn't just shut the door, he slams it. He, he puts these things, he forces these things to submit. He subdues them by force, makes these things some servient by force under his feet. All these rulers, authorities, dominions, powers under his feet. And this just isn't what we walk on, the bottom of our bodies. This means that he placed under the complete control of. They're under his control. And he gave him, he assigned and appointed him as head over all things. Superior and in charge of all things. Gave him to the church. And this church is his body. He's the central nervous system. He's the head. The body belongs to him and functions at his command and his control. The fullness of him who feels all in all. So the church is his body. The church is the fullness of him. And this fullness of him, uh, you get the idea that it's a collection of sorts. It's a term of like a collector would use. And he's, he's, he's working within the church until the whole set has been complete. If you've collected ball cards, I've collected ball cards before in my childhood, not so much anymore. My boys collect Pokemon cards. It kind of bothers me a little bit, kind of a waste of money. I understand what my dad thinks about it now when I was a kid. But, but the, the idea is, man, you would love to have every number in place and in order and have the complete set, Right? This is the idea here, the fullness of him, the completed fullness of him who fills all in all, who makes all things complete, who satisfies. The big idea here is that we must have God working in us in order for us to know and to see and to experience him and his gospel truth in our lives. We have to have him working in us through his spirit of wisdom and revelation, knowing him in order for us to understand and receive more and more of what our glorious inheritance is. And we must have God continuing to bear with us, working in us as we continue to grow in our understanding and knowledge and experience of him. The big idea here is that the one who powerfully worked in providing such a beautiful, wonderful salvation will continue to work powerfully within us and for us until the set is complete and our inheritance is fully given. And nothing, nothing, no power, no person, no people can stop this from happening. Not even you. Not even you, not even me, not even Paul's imprisonment, not even his death, not his current situation, not yours, not his doubts, not yours, not mine. Nothing can hinder what God has intended. So be steadfast and immovable in your faith. Family, Jesus Christ is absolutely and totally and completely sufficient for us in this life today and in the life to come. And true life is seeing Jesus for who he is. It's, it's learning more of what he's accomplished for us. True life is worshiping Jesus and through his power at work within us, ridding ourselves of all the little trivial pursuits of trying to find in other things what we've already been given in Christ. 
You've been buried with him. You've come alive with him. You are complete in Christ. He's not withholding anything from you that you don't need or that you need. You've got it all. The work that we see here that Jesus has accomplished for us through the power of God is our salvation. Jesus lived, crucified, raised, seated. Christian, this is your hope. Your hope is Christ. Your hope isn't your performance. Your hope isn't your ability to do enough good. Your hope is not to stay away from enough bad. Christian, hear me because you'll drift here along with me. This is our proclivity. This is our drift. Be aware of this. We say in Christ, but we live in the flesh. We live in my performance. I talk about big in Christ on Sunday. On Monday, it's in how my car looks and how big my house is and how much my salary is and what you think of me. And we go on and on and on. But you're not saved by your performance or your goodness. You're saved by Christ. You're not saved by your attendance at religious events or you abstaining from secular events. You're not saved through drinking this drink and staying away from that drink. You're not saved by this. You're not saved by doing good. You're not saved by a particular relationship other than a relationship with Jesus Christ. None of these things provide a true reason to hope, but they promise you hope and they trick us. They trick us. They mislead us. They bait and switch us constantly. They say the same thing Jesus says, but only Jesus is good for it. Only he is great enough to deliver what only posers promise. Our hope is only in Christ, that union with him. He delivers us from God's wrath. He he breaks free from us the bondages to evil and sin and our sinful desires. Knowing that we could never work hard enough or be good enough to earn our rescue or even rescue ourselves, God employs Christ on a saving mission to come to us. He takes our judgment, our failure, our guilt, our shame, our evil, and gives to us all that's needed to be perfect. Gives us a perfect life of Christ that he lived. Gives us his perfection. Gives us his sinlessness. Gives us his righteousness. And now we look just like him before the eyes of the Father. That's how we can be declared justified. It's because we're covered in Christ, united in union in him, in Christ. That is is how you're a Christian. It's because of what Christ did for you. And that is your only hope for any positive outcome after this life is in Christ, nothing else. So Christian, you have this, you have Christ. Your identity is in Christ and he is over all things. You are chosen, the apple of his eye, his own prized possession. He delights in you. He loves you. He rejoices in you. Allow that acceptance of someone so great and glorious, allow that acceptance to speak into your desire of finding acceptance in other things. Allow it to free you from trying to be so enamored and in awe of a car. Really? What someone else thinks of me? None of that compares with the glory and the greatness of God. And He likes you. You should blush every time you hear that. You should be like, oh, come on. on." This is written to encourage you. 
Christian, this is written to give you hope. There's victory from our greatest struggle in Christ. God raised Christ from the grave, from death, to a position of unparalleled honor and, and universal, universal authority. He's placed over all things, and he reigns there forever. There's no need to fear the future. God's power holds all this together, and his son rules all things from his throne. And Paul's point here is that we, the church, should find comfort in knowing that he reigns over the cosmos, over everything. But here's my ask for you, Christians, that you would pray for God to reveal the spirit of revelation, right? Spirit of wisdom, that he would reveal things, that he would reveal to you the secret places of your soul. He rules and reigns over everything. And if our life is a home, we've welcomed him in the front door. He's got a comfortable seat on the couch and living room, but we've got closets and closets and closets where the light of the gospel has yet to free us. I pray that you ask God to illuminate those dark, deep, private places of worship where you're so caught up in other things that you would ask him to speak into those places. Don't be impressed with the living room. Ask him to do some work in the darker places. You know, as, as, as good as this is, and when I preach it, I'm really in, encouraged and, and reminded of just how good it is. But when I sin, I dismiss all this as glorious. When I sin, I dismiss it even as true and good. And each time I try to find significance in something else other than God, I'm basically saying that all that I just said isn't enough. And you do the same thing. It's like I'm trying to be satisfied in something that's not as good, not as glorious, and not as great, and then I'm surprised on the back end of it. And I do it all the time. You do it all the time. C.S. Lewis spoke of this in the book, uh, The Weight of Glory. He says, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. Strong for other things. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. Friends, Ephesians 1 calls us to repent. So Christians, ultimately, I ask you to repent today. Repentance is turning to Jesus to find what you thought you could find elsewhere in that thing and that thing and that thing. Ask God to reveal to you where you have placed your hope in other things that can't deliver as Christ already has delivered. Turn from those things that, that we've been fooled by into thinking they can please us. Turn to Jesus and hope in him for your pleasure, that only he can please you and satisfy you. And church, I ask that you never stop preaching this gospel to yourself and to one another, constantly reminding yourself of this truth, telling yourself over and over and over of this hope that we have in Christ and through Christ and his power and spirit at work within us. Don't let this get old. It's not yesterday's news. It's relevant today and tomorrow. It's futuristic. It's going to be helpful tomorrow and the next day and the next day and the next day, on and on and on. 
Do not let this become routine. Continue to blush when you hear that God loves you in Christ. It is such a danger and an epidemic in the church to no longer be amazed by grace. Family, if there's anyone in any church anywhere, if there's any church that stays in awe of Christ Jesus, I want it to be the Axis Church. I want to be right here where we just don't allow it to become routine. And when this happens, we will be humble. It'll, it'll humble us as we're constantly reminded of just how needy we are for him to stay with us and bear with us and change us. May we stay low and not proud. May we, may we not have this gospel amnesia, but would it be the forefront of our minds constantly reminding ourselves of this glorious truth. You want to be a better husband? Preach the gospel to yourself. You want to be a better wife? Preach the gospel to yourself. You want to be a good roommate, a good son, daughter, aunt, uncle, neighbor, coworker, et cetera, et cetera, whatever. It's found in the gospel of Jesus Christ. This, preaching this to yourself, asking God to reveal through wisdom and knowledge his truth, the dark closets, that's what changes you. Not following five or six steps and getting really great at climbing these different moralistic ladders and what it means to be a good football coach, what it means to be a good dad, what it means to be a good designer, a good missionary, and all this. You can do all these things and not be a Christian. You can graduate seminary and not be a pastor. Graduate seminary and not be a Christian. It has nothing to do with greater knowledge as much as it is just greater belief. How do you get greater belief? You continue to ask for God to help your unbelief. And you continue to, continue to persist in the scriptures. You continue to preach the gospel to yourself. Even when, you know, when, when the gospel is preached, it's the role of every Christian to stop yourself and say, Hey, Jeremy, listen part of what it means to be a Christian is when you hear it preached, say, I know, I know this is going to be routine. We're about to take communion. It's going to be routine. We're just going to come up, take dip, go, go sit down. Don't, don't let it be routine. Think, pray, think. This is what it means to be a Christian. As you dwell in things like this, Christians, please hear this. Please, for those who aren't Christians, you must know that there's nothing that supersedes Jesus Christ. There is no greater power. There's no greater knowledge. There's nothing more wonderful and glorious than God Almighty. And, and no one can change what he has planned. So there's no greater power. And no one can love you more because no one loves you the way that he does because no one knows you the way that he does. You're his creation. <laughs> he knows you. He forms you strategically, carefully, with so much love and concern. And he made you to enjoy a relationship with him. This is how he's fashioned you. No one could love you more because no one is love. People do loving things, but he is love. And you can be secure and satisfied in him. On your own, you'll never work hard enough to earn any hope of any afterlife on your own. Can't work for this. That's why Jesus came. So I ask you, just as I ask the Christians, I ask for you to repent too, to turn to Christ and away from the things that you thought could satisfy. I mean, you've spent your whole life up, up until today 
believing that you can be happy and satisfied in so many other things. But today, I ask that you turn to Jesus just as you've turned to those other things before in your past. Going after them for hope, going after them for identity, going after them for something new and greater. Go to Christ. I mean, what if? What if you uh, turn to, to God in Christ and experience this salvation? Perhaps your story could be like mine, changed by grace. Perhaps your story could be like the man who tried so many other things, and we read about him in the scripture, the lame man on the mat. He's tried so many things to help remedy his illness and touch his spine and his legs to help him walk. Nothing worked for over three decades. He tried all things. But then this nonsense of going up to this man named Jesus I mean, there's no potion, there's no magic rub, there's a, no, it's just, you're just going to tell me to see this guy? Yes, he saw him, he experienced Jesus, he was healed, he was made new. I want this to be true of you today, that you experience God in this way. This has nothing to do with me or your spouse or your church the Axis, your past, your parents, whoever your most religious person is in your family has nothing to do with them. This is all between you and God, between you two. His spirit is willing. He's near you. I just ask that you would believe him. I mean, perhaps it's the prayer of a daddy that we see in scripture where he says, Jesus, I want you to heal my son. He says, do you believe I can do it? He says, well, I believe, but help my unbelief. What if you just prayed that sort of simple prayer? Lord, I, I want to believe. I want to believe more. Would you help my doubts? I've got a lot of struggles. What if you just told God that? What if you confessed that to him? It could be just as simple as coming to him with that type of faith. It doesn't take much, my friends. He's ready and willing. Come to him today. Believe Jesus. Believe Jesus is Lord and that he did all things needed to save you. And now it is that time for us to remember him in communion and his hard work for us, of, his, of our great and gracious and glorious sovereign God this morning. When we come and take this communion and we take the bread and we dip it in the juice or wine, we're reminding ourselves of, of what Christ has accomplished for us. Jesus gave this to the church as a way of remembering. So come and take this bread, which represents his body, broken for you, and dip it in the juice or wine, illustrating his blood that was poured out for you and his suffering to forgive you of your sin, to make all this a possibility. Remember what he's accomplished for you. Don't let this be routine. Tell yourself the gospel truth as you come and take. And for those who aren't Christians, I ask that you take Jesus this morning, that you believe him, that you call out to him for faith to believe that your, the eyes of your heart would be illuminated and that your ignorance would be removed and you would have knowledge of who God is. I pray this for you. Let's pray for our time of communion. Father, thank you for your help this morning in understanding some things. And Lord, uh, just to be with your, your church, thank you. Lord, be with those who have heard this word. Lord, would we process this? Would we dwell on these truths? Would we, Lord, uh, remind ourselves of this gospel? Would we be encouraged by it? Would we know the hope of what lies ahead? And would we have a vision for what lies ahead speaking in so that we endure well? 
for your glory. Aware of your power that's at work within us through your indwelling Holy Spirit. Help us understand these things and live in light of these things. Lord, um, be with us now as we take communion. Thank you for this. Blessed in your unique way in Christ's name. Amen.